So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we're going to be bringing you the news and not the rampant speculation about uh, the coaching moves that have happened, which are interesting, which are boring, which are, you know, potentially explosive. Uh, then we're also going to have a look at the setup that's happening in LA, then we're going to look forward to next week's games, we're going to look at the games from last week and we're going to take one or two of your listener questions. So hey guys, we've got uh, Connor here, we've got Harry. Hi, how you um, doing? We've got Roman. Hello. So we get on, lads, any crack? Nah, it's it's Tuesday, back in work, it's all going... Although yeah, I've, I've started giving training now in work, which is terrifying and new experience, so that's been... Uh, I think they think I'm good at the job, which is weird, because I'm not. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And what about yourself, Fitz, any crack? Oh, you know, just, you know, the season's over, obviously, so looking forward to the off-season and... Uh... You know, I had a lot of useful free agency and stuff like that. Yeah, from, from, from what I understand, football's finished now. There's no more games, right? Yeah, I love, exactly. I, I love that <laughs> when you ask Fizzle about, like, oh, how you doing? What's going on in your life? He's like, well, football. Football is the thing. <laughs> Ronan just lives and breathes football. Yeah. Oh, you know it. <laughs> So I suppose we'll crack on to some of the news because we've got a lot of games to get through later on. The first thing we're going to chat about is the coaching news. Now, I actually called a few of these correct uh, last week when we were talking about it. Uh, there is a slight problem, obviously. We record on a Tuesday. It goes out to you on a Thursday night slash Friday morning. So uh, sometimes the news moves quicker than... Uh, than we do. But that said, we do move quite slowly. Some of the changes we're going to look at, I decided because we're, we've all talked about coaches for quite a while, split into three sections. The very little to say, kind of boring, the neutral zone, kind of meh, could be okay, could be bah, and then the potentially interesting, which are either potentially good or potentially hilarious. So very little to say. I suppose the two on this one would be the New York Giants have decided to promote Ben McAdoo from offensive coordinator to head coach. I presume this provides a bit of continuity for the team. Eli gets to stay with the system he's used to. What do we think of this one? Uh, Roland, I suppose I'll go to you on this. Like, Do you think it's a good hire? Is this just a fuck it, it'll do for the time being? Or Yeah, it's kind of a weird one. Like They kind of say, oh, there's something wrong with the team, so we'll get rid of the one person who everyone actually respects and stuff like that. Yeah. But it just kind of seems that like they liked what McAdoo was doing in offense, and they were, I think they were probably afraid that he was going to get picked off by some other team. So I think this might be just a case where they wanted to keep hold of McAdoo. They were kind of done with Coughlin, so it just kind of had a co- But That's just basically the way it ran. And who knows, McAdoo may turn out to be an uh, offensive genius and we might be uh, lauding this. Could be, yeah. Like, couple of years I, I see what you mean. Like It's very strange in, a, in an organisation that hasn't had a great year that they kind of go, well, is, is it our terrible defence that's the problem? Is it our lack of depth and possibly our player personnel and selection team that's the problem? No, it's definitely that old coach who's gotten lots of success out of these people. If we get rid of him and don't change anything else, things will will work itself out. There's a bit of a theme going on of offensive coordinators being promoted to head coaches, which is weird because I think last year was mostly defensive-minded coaches that did it. I just I see on my list, everyone who we're going to discuss today was an offensive coordinator or a head coach that was essentially a glorified <laughs> offensive coordinator. The next one that we'll have a look at as well in the kind of very little to say, kind of slightly boring or questionable section. Mike Malarkey has been promoted to head coach of the Tennessee Titans. He was their tight ends coach before becoming the interim the interim man. Uh, head coach he has gone since that point two and seven as their head coach has a career as a head coach of 18 and 39 what exactly harry was the logic in making this man a head coach a crippling lack of ambition i think might be partially responsible it's a weird one as you say from tennessee's perspective because they're in a situation now they've got a new young quarterback they're trying to build a new team they've got a couple of exciting weapons um, and they're starting to, to try and you know, do a rebuilding project. And appointing a guy like Malarkey is interesting because a guy who you know struggled in Jacksonville, although I mean struggled in Jacksonville, whatever, struggled to get results this season. Although that's like was warm in Texas, exactly. And it's <laughs> the same thing: struggled to get results with Zach Mettenberger under center. And again, it's like, well, you know. But it does seem a little odd. They want to shake things up. They need to do things differently because the results are bad. But at the same time, they're also trying to get some continuity in Tennessee, which may not necessarily be a bad thing. But when you want continuity, you generally want somebody who has proven something within the team, as in the McAdoo thing, where it's like, well, obviously he'd have some success and you had a lot of trust in Eli Manning after initial difficulties. With Malarkey, there's nothing quite as obvious as that. Now, maybe it's an internal dynamic that we just can't see, but yeah. it's a questionable one. My sort of slightly out-there interpretation on this 
Tennessee looked at the coaching options, were like, right, we can't get Hugh Jackson. We don't really want anyone else. Let's just stick with this guy, because if it comes to us having to, you know, if it sticks, great, but if it comes down to us, it doesn't stick, we have to fire him. That's not going to be a hugely controversial big thing to do. It's going to be a nice, easy one, and then maybe when the market is a little bit better, and there's a guy uh, that they reckon they can get, like look for one of the Panthers' defensive or offensive coordinators next year... Perfect, we'll try and get that guy. This guy is just a stopgap. So it's a fairly low-risk, low-reward kind of thing from Tennessee. Fair enough, yeah. Like we said, probably not expecting a huge amount of a turnaround there. Although I have, what I looked into his background a bit more, he seemed to have a lot more success as an offensive coordinator than he did as a head coach. So potentially, that's what they're hoping for from him. The neutral zones, these are ones that could actually be good, but we don't really know either enough or you know could go either way. Tampa Bay have made a decision. They've decided to... Promote Cotter, Cotter, Cooter. We, we, had, uh, we had a week to find how, out how, 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 However, you want to figure that one out. Their offensive coordinator has now become their head coach. Uh, this obviously is probably what they were intending to do from the outset. They made this move to protect him from being poached by other teams. But does this tie him entirely to the fate of their quarterback? Does this mean that he has two years to prove himself or he's out? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think uh, I'm going to go with Cotter. Cotter's fate is very much tied to Jameis Winston's performance. Like They've obviously promoted him because they're like, well, we thought that the offense was getting good things out of Jameis. And at times their offense was extremely explosive. There was a, a feeling that it's like, Lovey had to go. What do you do? You look for a guy who you think has done good work within the team and you think other teams are going to want to take and you want to maintain that relationship that he seems to have with the quarterback that's quite good. But yeah, if they start struggling, if Jameis doesn't develop, if Jameis doesn't progress, it's not just a case of, oh, the team is struggling, a young quarterback is struggling. It's a case of, you're here because we think you can get the most out of this guy. If you can't, why are you here? So it's a bit of a risky proposition for them and a bit of a risky proposition for Cotter himself. Yeah, it's, it's, it is going to pretty much come down to how does Jameis play and how does the system he puts in place let Jameis play? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, I agree, Charlie, that I think it is. He's, he's, his fate is kind of tied there uh, for the next one. And I suppose if he does well, he might find something afterwards again. His fate within that organisation is now, for the next two years, dependent on how that progression happens. Uh, the Eagles have also made a decision. They have stolen uh, the offensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs, Pedersen. I suppose a lot of this is going to be based on the, hey, do you remember how fun it was when we had Andy Reid and not Chip Kelly? Yeah, let's try and get that again. Pedersen has been working with Andy for the last two three years and they've decided to take him on i'm a chiefs fan and i don't think this is the most exciting decision you can make for your organization there was obviously the storyline was that andy reed was calling his own plays making his own plans this guy was not doing a huge amount and then you said that they then handed some more work over towards uh to Pedersen to make some of these decisions so then either you've got all of the problems of andy reed on offense with time management and whatnot or else he hasn't done any of the play calling himself and therefore has no reason to be a head coach. Uh, Can you see one of those teams that, as I understand it, script a lot of the plays before a game as well? They script is... the first 15 to 20 plays, I think. And that's why you've seen the first 15 to 20 plays tend to be very effective. So, like, in a lot of games, they went up early and then they just kind of go, meh. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose, Fitz, I'll come to you on this one. What do you, what do you make of this Pedersen hire? Because I'm not going to lie, I'm a Chiefs fan, I like Pedersen, but I don't think it's very exciting. Yeah, it, it kind of seems like a classic kind of coaching, action-reaction kind of thing. Every time someone fires a coach, they try to go back to the opposite of it. So in this case, you know, they bring in crazy Chip Kelly, and then it didn't really work out. So it's like, well, can we, just, can we go back to Andy Reid, please? Uh, <laughs> the thing is, like, Andy Reid continues to have a pretty good relationship with the ownership. I think it didn't really end uh, too acrimoniously there. And apparently he was basically recommending Pedersen to Lurie, Je- Jeffrey Lurie, the Eagles owner. Yeah. So I think it's just a case where they saw what happens when you go for these kind of very egotistical coaches. And I think with the way that they've reorganized the front office, uh, with Harry Roseman being put back in the, like a proper GM position. I think getting someone who's familiar with what they want and who has a decent upside, yeah, it's, it's just a good, solid choice. Probably don't expect them to be challenging for the NFC. Well, it's always possible in the NFC, but yeah. probably <laughs> challenging this year, just like rebuilding what is a, a roster which has been, de- well, not decimated, but been affected by some... Uh, interesting personnel decisions over the last few years yeah no of course speaking of interesting personnel decisions let's move into the interesting category of changes we've seen the 49ers have decided on who their new head coach is going to be it's going to be chip kelly 
who is bringing back the cap. Kaepernick is his man. Uh, my favourite thing about this, they had all the Kaepernick jerseys were on sale in the clearance section for $6. Because they were like, we're done with him. He's out of here. And then Chip Kelly, Chip Kelly came in and said, I like this guy. He's my quarterback. So now they pulled him back and they're now fully priced again. It's a very strange decision, but I suppose the ownership there in New York aren't really known for making the best calls on who's going to lead a franchise. Chip Kelly, I think, has potential as a coach, even though this year went terrible. I think he hasn't a clue what he's doing personnel-wise. So as long as they keep that out of his hands, I think they have a better chance of survival. And the 49ers have a roster that has no one of quality on it, so he can't fuck it up too much. (laughs) Discuss, Ronan. When you have a coach like Chip Kelly who's really interested in pushing his own system or his own ideas about how the, the game should be played, then getting a lot of young players and turning the roster over quickly is probably what he wanted to do initially, probably, uh, with Philadelphia. But that was a team which actually had lots of talent on it. So it's kind of hard to like justify in a single season turning it over. This could, like, this could be a good situation for Chip Kelly. It kind of reminds me of uh, Pete Carroll when he first came to the Seahawks, which was a very old, kind of talent-deficient roster, where you can easily just like move the roster, churn the roster over and over and over again quickly, and get what you want out of those players and pick the best players you want for your system. There is one thing about this, Ronan, I must say, I just now got an image of, you know the way that Pete Carroll was returning punts for the team to give him a break? Could you imagine watching Chip Kelly trying to run a punt back? (laughs) It's a good situation to try. Like, I think it's like in the 49ers, they don't really have anything to lose. Of the coaches out there to do a complete uh, roster rebuild from top to bottom, Chip Kelly is a very interesting choice to make. Will it work out? That's very much up for debate. But I think for a team where the 49ers were after this season, I don't think they have anything to lose. We'll see if Kaepernick is his QB. And if so, maybe we'll see something from Kaepernick again that we saw a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's interesting you you said, actually, because I think that there is an element similar to what we were discussing with Philadelphia, where there's an attempt to turn back the clock and be like, well, we had Kaepernick worked really, really well in that spread, read option, college-style system. Chip Kelly runs that spread college style um, system let's put him in here and see if it works also Chip Kelly gets to show that he's not a racist yeah that's true (laughs) to a certain extent but I think that's only purely because of the environment there and how poorly if he tried to get a roster of all white people to play in California how poorly they would perform we have no cornerbacks anywhere (laughs) the final one we're going to have a chat about now is the Cleveland Browns in a surprise turn of events have managed to be successful in something They have managed to attract Hugh Jackson, who has not only said he likes the weird, fucked-up way that they've gone about (laughs) acquiring a coach, he said, oh, I'm pretty sure lots of other people down the line will be emulating this kind of formula. But essentially, he's now the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. He's drafting number two. He said his joining of the team was contingent on getting rid of Johnny Football or not using Johnny Football. So they'll be almost certainly drafting a quarterback with the number two pick overall. How do we see this going? Obviously... They want him, they want to give him a bit of leash, and it's the Browns, so like winning five games a season is pretty much like bingo, bingo, like well done. How do you see his tenure going? What do you think he has to achieve in the first three years to stay there, Harry? By the way, just before we get into that, I just want to say like this is incredible. We made so much fun of the way Cleveland were going about this, and they've landed the guy who everyone wanted. They've landed the best available coach, so that's remarkable. They actually um, had one person on the selection committee who was just there to arrange dumper trucks full of money to pull up at Hugh Jackson's house. <laughs> <laughs> that would not surprise me at all, and it will be interesting to see how Cleveland ruins Hugh Jackson. But, <laughs> you know, we've seen his head coaching tenure very briefly before in Oakland, and that was a very chaotic, talent-deficient Oakland team. And Yeah, he only lasted a season, but it actually wasn't a terrible season. They showed signs of progress that year, and he was perhaps unlucky not to be given more time, but just given the scenario. In Cleveland, it looks like, for the first time in a long time, Cleveland are willing to, like you say, give a bit of leash, give a bit of time, actually like try and build around something rather than just constantly turn over the coaching staff in the hope that something sticks eventually. And if they can actually manage to do that for three or four years, that would be very, very important. And I think what they're trying to do with um, particularly by appointing Hugh Jackson, is look at what the Bengals did from their slump a while ago and sort of get the strong coaching staff in to copy what their what their rivals have been doing. And this is a natural choice in that for a variety of reasons. Um, obviously, the immediate genealogy of where his coaching comes from being, being the most relevant one. Uh, how do I see it going for him? It's not going to be an immediate success. There's still going to be problems like you're going to be picking a new quarterback Manzella's gone. I don't know if McCown will still be hanging around. They're going to still have problems. And, you know, whoever they swing on this year may not hit home or may not hit immediately. And I think the management are going to have to be patient with that 
in terms of in terms of where they go. What will be a success for him? You know, if Cleveland can get an eight and eight season over the next three years, that's a success. Yeah. Quite genuinely, that would be a success, and that would make him one of the most successful Cleveland head coaches in in, in recent they, t- if memory. If they're picking outside of the top twelve or fourteen picks. That's probably a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. And for them, I think this is about progress. It's about building. If Cleveland can actually do that, and if um, Halson can keep his patience for a couple of years, this could actually potentially be a turnaround for the Browns now. Being the Browns, who knows how it's going to go. Things could go horribly wrong. They could draft a new quarterback, and he could turn out to be an even bigger cokehead than Johnny, allegedly. I do wonder where Manziel's going to end up. That's going to be interesting, but that's a discussion, I think, for uh, for another day. Yes. But, it's uh, also, good it's, move it's also definitely Dallas. Uh, yeah. Um. But it's, it's overall, <laughs> absolutely. But overall, no, genuinely, a good move from Cleveland. And if they can stick with this one, this could actually be the thing that helps the franchise turn the corner. It's been stuck trying to go around basically since the team was stolen. No, of course. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. There's a lot of potential here, and I think they've they've done well. I've still not sold in this new structure, regardless of how mm. much Hugh Jackson says it sounds like it'll work. An interesting side note, because we're just doing head coaches at the moment, but we just kind of said, like, Hugh's coming in from, from, from the Bengals, and lineage is important. Have you seen what the Bengals have done to replace him? No, I haven't. They have that. brought in the IBM salesman from uh, the Miami Dolphins to now be a quarterback's coach. And they've not only just hired him, they've also, because of the fantastic job that they did, hired the defensive backs coach from the Dolphins to now be their defensive backs coach. So they... They've decided... (laughs) The Bengals have decided that to move forward, they need to import the Dolphins from this year. (laughs) Did they not notice what happened to Ryan Tannehill? We'll discuss this on a later podcast, but just so we know... Hugh Jackson has left the Bengals and in his place they have sent the 2015 Miami Dolphins. Uh, maybe they're trying to get, get the coach fired. It's like, yeah, you can have these guys. It's like they're finally sick of him but he just has to not make the playoffs one year. It's like, okay, we can finally fire him. Time go. That's it. That's, that's, it. A, that's a little too real, man. That's a little too real. Speaking of that, we'll go quickly to this because I think actually we're just going to be discussing something that we hypothesized last week that has come to pass. Uh, we have a team moving to LA and it is the LA Rams, previously known as the St. Louis Rams, previously known as the LA Rams. I did like the idea of uh, someone suggesting this should be called the LA Rams uh, presented by the St. Louis Rams of LA. <laughs> Uh, so yeah so they're going ahead uh, the options on the table are so they're going ahead with their their Inglewood project the option now is the Chargers have a year to option on to join them at that stadium if the Chargers decide to not go for that the Oakland Raiders then have the option to take up that spot we've got the LA Rams that's locked in and almost certainly we're going to have the LA Chargers as well as, as we sort of got the direction the wind was blowing and then found out as soon as we were done recording the podcast uh, that it happened it, it is the bid that like made itself make sense like the Rams and Cronkay basically just bully boyed their way through it went no we bought a land we're building a stadium stop us I will pay uh, 2.6 billion to develop this place how about we just do that yeah well that's, exa- that's exactly what they did and yeah, the Chargers are kind of now in a really difficult situation because they pretty much burnt their bridges. Like, I know there's that referendum on funding and stuff, but the city, like, they need a new stadium either way. The city is probably a little bit pissed off at them. Um, they're kind of caught me in a rock and a hard place because we discussed last week all those development opportunities are going to be gone around Inglewood. So they're probably going to have to move, but they're not going to be particularly happy about it. And as for Oakland, I believe San Antonio are trying to bring them to Texas, which is actually a huge sports market. Yeah, massive. Um, so that would be interesting to see what the Davises decide to do and whether or not they decide to show loyalty to the fan base in Oakland or if they decide to go basically go to Texas, which is a very real proposition because the NFL would love to get into the San Antonio yeah. market. The, um, the, the one I've heard is that essentially it's almost a locked-in thing that the, the Chargers are going to have to go with the Ram, which means that they can then drop two to two... And, Two hundred and fifty thousand million into the pocket of the Oakland Raiders for redevelopment of stadium and support there. There's already city support to provide funds to them to develop that further. Although I believe at the moment what it is is they are up for giving development rights rather than property rights to the surrounding areas or something like. So one of these very fiddly like. I'm a very rich developer and this is a delineation that I find problematic. Like, nothing that any of us give a shit about. Basically, they're willing to give a lump of money to them. I think they wanted to use, if they get a different kind of rights to the land, they can use that to give that to investors to get funding off them for a new stadium. But essentially, like, if they're sat there with 
two to three hundred million from them. They can raise four to five hundred million from this land access that they have around Oakland, and then they can source themselves two or three hundred million more. They've got over a billion there for either complete redo on their current stadium or to set up a, a, a new approach. So, like, there is options there for them to stay. But yeah, you're right. If, if, if that market was to open itself up to them, that'd be amazing. Ronan, do you have any, any, any other bits on this? Yeah, so like the one interesting thing is that the of the three cities uh, affected by this, St. Louis was the one that was closest to offering a feasible like stadium plan. San Diego had this issue with the funding. Oakland, uh, excluding like the money that they're going to get and all, all those issues you discussed there, don't really have a plan of any sort at the moment. Well, St. Louis was actually pretty close. It's just a case that Crunky was like, I have all this. I'm, I I really want to be an LA property developer and create NFL land in Inglewood. So he just he literally just burned bridges as quickly, and that's basically why he ended up winning in the end, sheer force of will. But there is not. You can pretty much expect that now St. Louis will join the roster of cities, which will become the give us our money or we're moving there. So it'll be kind of interesting to see St. Louis become that team. Because like pretty much every team except for LA has always historic who's lost an NFL team has managed to get an NFL team pack uh, yeah. at some point. So I think that'll be something to keep an eye out for because there's always teams being speculated for them moving. I think it'll be a couple of years before we see another one at this rate, but it could be sooner than we think. We could have a couple more moving uh, with the amount of money going into the NFL for the next few years. That's it. Jacksonville Jaguars moving to St. Louis. There's been discussions from some of the local government in St. Louis as well about the ability to sue uh, NFL teams who then take government monies or local property monies uh, to build stadiums and then leave because they haven't given any of it back and essentially suing them for loss of income which uh, I thought was a very interesting fuck you on the way out that would be fun but yeah, so I suppose like there's lots of other bits and pieces going on, but those are the main ones. And I think it's the middle of the playoff season. We all want to discuss games more than we want to discuss this kind of crap. So let's get on to the games from last week. So we have the divisional round this week. We had four games, four home victories for the top seeds, meaning we've got the one versus the two for the championship games of each game. That said, didn't mean that they weren't entertaining. Uh, first game we're going to kick off with is Kansas City at New England, 20-27. to To be fair, even as a KC fan, this is a game that was not as close as the score suggests, uh, at least from my perspective. Chiefs allowed chances to slip from their fingers, uh, field goals instead of touchdowns, fumbles, and just mistakes here and there. And a big, massive question that I'm sure we'll talk about of time management at the end of this game. The Patriots, on the other hand, looked exceptionally good. Their line was something that really, really surprised me. If I remember correctly, over the course of this game, they only allowed two hurries. <laughs> the entire thing, one on each side. Um, now, there was injuries on Kansas City Chiefs' side in that certain players weren't playing, but like that's ridiculously good. The returning players looked healthy and looked good. Like A very complete game... I saw in this one from the Patriots. I thought KC were okay, but they were lacking in areas. And you could see the holes that injuries left on their roster, whereas New England had the ability to maneuver and work around anyone who was injured on theirs, including, if I remember, in-game injuries to the line that held up so well. So I suppose, Ronan, I'll start with you because you've less invested in this game. What were your takeaways from it? Yeah, it's kind of like one of those weird games. Like I don't think these teams are that far apart in talent level. Like, I think, like, the Pats have a lot of places, including their run game, which they didn't do anything with, yeah. basically. All. Like, James White existed in the game. He didn't do anything in the game, except for a couple of actual passes. But, yeah, it was kind of a weird game, but you kind of always had that sense that the Patriots had this under control, uh, with perhaps the one exception of that uh, that late-tipped pass near the end of the game. Oh, don't don't even remind me of that one. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> I was just like, oh, maybe! No. <laughs> But, like, to be fair, that is kind of, like, an indication of the game. Like, it just kind of seemed that the Pats, with the exception of a few early drops from Edelman, kind of had everything going for them, and they kind of had seen to have this game under control. Like, I think it's just, like, I think that's the difference between the good teams and the great teams. It's just that kind of sense that they have that, that, extra, that extra level that they can go, with, go to. Mm-hmm. And when you, have a, when you have a player like Tom Brady and you have a coach like Bill Belichick, and you have playmakers like Rob Gronkowski, you can just kind of do that. One damning statistic about the Chiefs is that Andy Reid and like Alex Smith have never successfully completed a two-minute drive at the end of a half or a game. 
So it's kind of I think that kind of shows you the difference between these two teams. Because even though they're both very effective teams, like the Chiefs can only win in one way. That's get ahead and then sit in the other team, while the Patriots can win in whatever way they they want basically. And in this game, they were the ones who strangled the game and left a, a Chiefs team. It just doesn't seem to be set up for these kind of comeback attempts. No, of course, and I like. The one thing I would say is I disagree to one extent that I think there was there was potential. You could see they were, especially towards the back end, figuring out how they could move the ball against what was a very, very good New England defense as well. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. They're not set up to kind of have that quick win. What I think is we when we discussed this last week, we were saying we're going to see strength against strength. We're going to see this Patriots offense against this KC defense. But what I saw there was the Patriots schemed themselves so well to remove the things that the KC defense did well. The pass rush was essentially non-existent uh, in terms of affecting the game. The corner play and the, the secondary were, were there and were effective, but it was it was minimizing their input into that game. It was trying to remove what made them strong. And I think the New England team did that much better than the KC team did to try and slowing down the positives that the New England team had. So as Harry... Congratulations. Um, What is key for New England coming out of this game to look at and to build on moving on? Let's not talk just in terms of the game upcoming, but if you were looking at this, say this was a mid-season game, what would you be, this was good, this was bad, this is what we need to work on? Yeah, I don't know if I'm actually as enthused as you are about the performance. It was a good performance, it was a very good game, a very entertaining game, Uh, but there were definitely things that come out of that that we need to work on. And I mean, what's critical is what you just said there is that New England won this game by basically outthinking Kansas City, uh, didn't let them get their pass rush going, and sort of basically forced Kansas City's offense to play in a way that it, albeit started to figure it out towards the end of the game, for a lot of the game couldn't and were unable to play in the way they wanted to, and that's critical for a New England roster that is talent deficient in some places needs to be able to do that regularly, and that was a really good sign. They were able to do that against a team of Casey's quality. Now, admittedly, a slightly one-dimensional in some ways team. Missing, obviously, well, not missing, but having the player who had an extra dimension being very, Jerry Macklin being very limited throughout the game. But it was encouraging to see that, and that's also not to, again, I know you said don't do this, but just very briefly, in terms of Denver, that's a good thing to look forward yeah. to. We'll discuss this more uh, more later. In terms of in general, there were some things that concerned me, like the corner play was generally solid, but New England's secondary does still give up splash plays a little too regularly, and splash plays, from particularly from guys like Jason Avant, is a little bit worrying. So the sign is, again, we still do need to be a bit tighter on the back end, while the secondary has talent, there is still lack of experience in some areas, and they are prone to lapses in concentration, and that's something that I think we needed to focus on all season. The O-line looked a huge amount better with Vollmer back. He made a huge difference. He was absolutely handling guys at the line of scrimmage all day, which is very impressive when you consider the quality of um, of pass rushers. Now, admittedly, Justin Houston again was limited in the game, but even then... It Kansas, snaps. Yeah, it's limited. <laughs> <laughs> even then, Kansas City do still have a lot of talent there, so that was very encouraging to see. And the O-line has at times played well this season, and that's the kind of level of play that we need to see them maintain going forward against, again teams, whoever they end up playing for the rest of the season, teams with very good pass rushes. So that's something that needs to be, that does need to be worked on. The other big thing coming out of it is, and this is for me the big, big positive, is we we knew it was going to happen, but we saw the impact of Julian Edelman. Yep, he struggled to get into the game at first, he was moving a bit funny, I gather he basically couldn't bend one of his feet, so that did, you can see that affected his balance and his cuts. Sorry, just as an aside, how does one bend their feet? You bend your foot when when, when you run. When you run, do you you not run with the balls of your feet? Yeah. Yeah, you flex your foot properly so right, he was basically yeah. couldn't, didn't have full movement in his foot because there's a metal plate in the shoe okay well, we'll do is we're going to save that for the later on podcast the uh, the, the Rex the, Ryan orthopedic section the, the, the orthopedic <laughs> foot fetish uh, podcast we're, we're slowly filling up a list of things to do in the off season <laughs> yeah. this might be one of them yeah but no genuinely so you can see it affecting the start of the game that was affecting his roots and his timing and he was having drops but once he got comfortable he made a huge difference again the comfort level the chemistry between him and Brady is so so important to this offense it just chewing up yards, particularly where there's no run game, chewing up yards, moving things along. The run game is obviously still a disaster. You said James White existed. He did. Stephen Jackson, that's debatable. If he even existed in the game. <laughs> Stephen Jackson got his first playoff win, I believe. He did. He did. And he helped. He, yeah, he didn't. He had one like eight-yard run. That was awesome. And then the rest of it was, was like not. He was like, take me out, coach. This is the best <laughs> average I've ever had. <laughs> for a long time yeah. he's That's... so slow presumably other players are slowed around him he's like a black hole or something I think it's the Brandon like Jacobs talent. Brandon Jacobs from a few years ago Key, but critically anyway the run game can still be a concern so we do need 
that kind of short, quick passing stuff. And we do need a bit more involvement from James White just to keep that going and to mean that we have more than one way to play and we can keep opponents off balance. But overall, the positives outweigh the negatives. There are still some things to look look to, uh, to fix and improve, because there always are going to be. But the important stuff, we did really, really well this week and we schemed our way to victory, which is what we need to be doing. No, of course, it's great. Good to see as well, like I say, Tom Brady not looking like he's getting the effects of that, that ankle injury from week 17. The recovering players looking to be playing quite well in the spot it means that we should have a very exciting championship game as we'll discuss later on and as we might discuss later on what we think might end up being the Super Bowl on to the next game now uh, Green Bay at Arizona 20-26 to in overtime this is quite an exciting game following a very quiet first half uh, like the second half was much more entertaining uh uh, although I suppose there were some interesting bits in the first half. Arizona failed entirely to get a run game going in this. Whereas like Larry Fitz and Jeff Janis, of all people, both had monster games. I think Jeff Janis was about 150 yards and Larry Fitz was 180 yards in this game. It's ridiculous. So Ronan, I thought it was going to be quite a dominant performance. You thought it was going to be an absolute blowout. What do you think caused this to not be the, the, the degree of superiority you were expecting? Yeah, like I think the biggest thing that Green Bay did in this game is they got the Carson Palmer, who seems to be a bit off. Like we know he has an he has an injury on his finger, which we know he, he's had to admit adjustments to his throwing uh, technique. And it just seems that between this and the Seahawks game, if you're able to get consistent pressure on him, and in this case the Packers really had to blitz a lot to try and take advantage of that, you can make Carson Palmer make mistakes. Like the, he threw uh, a couple of interceptions game. He could have threw a lot more interceptions mm-hmm. in this game. He just looked off all game. And as Harry said, like with that rushing like with that rushing game not really doing much for Car- for the Cardinals, like this is a team that relies on Carson Palmer getting the ball out. Now in this game he managed to get saved by Larry Fitzgerald basically being magic uh, mm-hmm. and you know going against the, the dawn of time. What we have here for the Cardinals, at least this with this uh, kind of banged up Carson Palmer, is a blueprint of how to get to them. And that's basically get pressure and don't let up on them and don't give them time to develop those deep rags, which have been such a part of the Arizona Cardinals repertoire. Uh, but also, you know, also may like even though it didn't really work out, major balls props to uh, Arians for blitzing. Oh, yeah, I love <laughs> that Hale, one. Yeah. On Hail Mary. <laughs> to Hail Mary, what do you do? Go on to prevent defense? No, fuck that. Blitz him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's good fun from that. Harry... I'll ask you, moving forward for Green Bay, what are the next steps? Apart from, obviously, removing Eddie Lacy's football. Um, <laughs> I saw I saw the coach came out and he said, Eddie can't play it this weight next year. He's, he's not able to play it this weight. He needs to change it. So there's two ways to take that. Either hashtag share if you're a big, beautiful quarterback who don't need no head coach. Or B, <laughs> he wants him to put on 20 pounds and play on the line. Oh, Mike Tolbert, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Turn into a fullback. Why not? Yeah, for Green Bay, you know, it's been a frustrating season. It's been an odd season where they seem to have played below their talent level. Some of the problems are going to go away when they get a guy like Jordy Nelson back. And there have been some positives. For example, the play of um, Mike Daniels on the line has been revelatory this year. The issues have become clear. The, the run game is inconsistent, if occasionally explosive. Uh, the O-line has been a, a shambles, to be honest with you, from start to finish this season. Uh, the defense, and the defense isn't good enough to compensate for it, in spite of all of the big names up front, and in spite of some pretty good line play. Uh, Clay Matthews has actually been quite disappointing, given the high level we're used to out of him. Uh, Peppers is, you know, he, he's, he, he's showing his age a bit, although he's still very talented. And the backfield, which is very young and very talented, is also very, very raw, and it doesn't feel like there's a leader there and a guy like Sam Shields who should have become the leader in that in that sort of unit has not managed to do so although he's still a decent player so they need to look to change those kind of things the other thing is that they should probably be looking at their coordinators because they've had this problem with who's calling the plays is it going to be the coordinators is it going to be Mike McCarthy and it hasn't made a difference it honestly hasn't made a difference so they got rid of McCarthy after the playoffs last year as play caller when he basically made a series of uh, very conservative decisions that were then botched. Then they started this season with the coordinators calling the plays, and that didn't work, and they switched back to McCarthy, and it honestly didn't work. So they've got to look at an alternative there and be like, maybe the OC and DC are part of the problem, and we need to revisit who we have there and who is actually calling these plays in and potentially look to expand the coaching staff. Because I think the problems 
on the field, yeah, lacking some talent. Of course, they lost uh, lost Randall Cobb during this game, which certainly didn't help. But I think they need to look at the back room as well and be like, there's something here just beyond the players that's causing a problem. And it feels like Green Bay are still at a reasonably good level, but it feels like they've been just spinning their wheels this season. Yeah, so there's probably a lot that they need to they need to look at going into the off season. I suppose we're going to focus in on each of the teams going into the off season, kind of give them a bit of an episode each. So we'll uh, we'll be able to go into more depth there. But yeah, there's like probably the one, deeper one problems. One thing to say is that the fact that Aaron Rodgers uh, like seemed to come back for the playoffs and actually play to the level that people expected him to play after what was a pretty average season for him, at least it has to give them some hope going into this off season that. That's fair. Like I would, I would, I would say yes and no, and that yes, obviously it's a positive for them to see that happening. But also, if anyone who's been a Green Bay fan or a yeah. staff member who's looked at this gun like, oh my god, maybe Aaron Rodgers has forgot how to football. Like <laughs> clearly, it was a wider issue that they can sort. He hasn't just completely forgotten how to be an incredible quarterback, and he still is an incredible. Like you look at this. This is three massive hail mary plays he's pulled off here. In this game alone, he had three. Three different passes that went over 50 yards in the air. Like, that's ridiculous. He's pretty good. Like, he's a pretty good quarterback. But yeah, <laughs> like, there's there's wider issues. And I think Harry's right there where, like, it's not just, it's not just like, oh my God, we're missing a wide receiver. Everything is collapsing. Maybe if one receiver disappearing causes everything to collapse, <laughs> it's not the receiver that's the problem. <laughs> uh, we're going to move on to the next game. Uh, I, I have to let you have your comment there. Uh, Fitz, because I think it's probably the last time you're going to be happy on this podcast. Time to move on to <laughs> Seattle at Carolina, 24-31. And, uh, woof, this was a rough one. <laughs> this was this was not a fun one for Ronan to watch. 31-0 uh, down at the halfway point. Carolina didn't score a point in the second half. And it was still a full touchdown away. Carolina were very happy to just sit on that lead. Uh, they ran 41 rushing plays versus 22 passing plays in this game. They were happy. Seattle's ground game wasn't getting anything going. And I think that's twofold. One element is that Carolina were doing a good job of shutting down the running game. But also they were coming from such a hole from so early on that they had to go to the pass game a lot more than they'd want to. Seattle did get it back within seven, but Carolina won out in the end. And bizarrely, I don't think it was a scenario of Carolina's defense completely crumbling. I think it was more a fact of... The offense just didn't do anything in the second half for Carolina. They just didn't bother their hold. So, Rodan, you're invested, so I'm going to go to Harry first on this game. Was this a scenario of prevent and chill for the second half that went wrong, or was it a lack of adaptability? Was it that after seeing how the first half went, the second half started to happen, the Seahawks adjusted and figured them out, but there just wasn't enough time? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, and I think you actually nailed it yourself uh, in, in the thing you were just saying there. That it was the really it was the Carolina offense that sort of just stopped producing as the game went on. Their defense just looked; they got tired. They were on the field an awful lot in the second half, and they just partially, yeah, were playing a lot more conservative, but also just were you know when a team is facing that many passes against a talented opponent, things are going to you know start going wrong. Seattle did get it back close, but it never again. It never felt like they were going to pull off a huge comeback. There just wasn't enough time. So yeah, I think they did adjust a bit better, and I think they came out and played a bit harder in the second half and found it easier to shut down Carolina because Carolina went to the run so much, and Seattle are quite good against the run. Yeah. So I think it was sort of that aspect. But I don't think it was a, a case of either or, even not necessarily a case of a bit of both, but a case of confluence where what Carolina did to sort of chill out and just take the heat out of the game, basically give themselves a rest in the second half against a team like Seattle. That's not a team you're able to do that against with sort of smothering efficiency because the things that you do to control a game and wind it down are the things that Seattle are very good at exploiting. Forcing three and out, stopping the run game from going and being able to pull off essentially ridiculous plays to keep their own drives alive when a defence is giving them a bit of room and a bit of cushion. I wouldn't read too much into the second half. When you look at that second half, you think, if this if this game went on for another 15 minutes, the Seahawks would probably win this game. Mm. But I think the fact that it wasn't going on for another 15 minutes was probably a large rationale as to why there wasn't as much production in the second half from them. They kind of thought, we'll sit on this lead a little bit more. That's not to say that the Seahawks didn't just ball out in that second mm. half. It was very yeah. impressive. Uh, Ronan... As a Seahawks fan, I suppose, what would you be taking away from this game? When you kind of walk away now and you kind of go, look, we're out of it now. We did very well. We played against a very good team. We lost. What's your focus on? Because obviously there's discussions of Lynch might be gone because he costs a lot of money. You've got people behind him, that kind of stuff. But you looking at this game, what are you going to take away as a coach if you were to pretend you had a game next week? 
when you look at that second half, like it's, it's kind of a cliche. It was a very brave performance, I suppose. But I think it was it was a case where Carolina, like the major thing that Carolina did not want to do was turn over the ball. I think at the end of this game, that's what that's what basically counted. Two turnovers in the first half by the Seahawks led to touchdowns. One directly, uh, one by a short field. And in the end, it was that that effectively gave uh, Carolina such a massive boost. Like they got the early touchdown, but it was those two uh, touchdowns of turnovers which gave them such a massive lead. And I think Carolina were aware that if they gave any turnovers to the Seahawks, and that would give them the momentum that they would need uh, to try and like really push on. Like as like from the Seahawks' perspective, it was just a slow start and like a bit of ill luck. Like you you can talk about all the what ifs. For example, like even on that first drive after Jonathan Stewart pulled off a, like a 50-yard run, like uh, Artis Payne then fumbled the ball on the next on the next run, and but that was recovered by Mike Tolbert. So like, uh, you know, as the cliche goes, as the cliche I've been spreading goes, basically, you know, you know, games turn on a very small number of events, and then yeah, like they dug themselves into a massive hole. Like you could blame trying to get Lynch back in, you could blame the the, the condition of the field, which was admittedly not really great. But at the end of the day, you can't afford to come out that they're so ill-prepared and make so many mistakes so early on. You can't afford to give away a pick six. You can't afford to throw away, give another uh, another interception uh, nearly straight after that. And you can't afford to then give away a five, six-minute drive. Like It's just one of those cases where you can't afford to, to give away early. And that's been the Seahawks' problem for a while now. There's been too many times where they've had to make miracle comebacks like think about Green Bay last year. That's true, uh, but Ronan, example. Ronan, let, let let's be honest. When you focus in on this season, you say too many times they had to make miracle comebacks. Like for the first half of this season, we were discussing the fact that they couldn't hold a lead in the fourth quarter. Like, yeah, this exactly. has been a team that's lacked consistency. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, that, that that's kind of a new problem. But like his, even his, like historically, this is a team that tries to play very conservative in the first half, and then has found that when they're behind, they have to basically turn over the offense. And they sometimes look amazing, and it's kind of. Why don't you just play like this all the time? But like their season as a whole, they started off the season so slowly. They were obviously very unlucky with some of those games and the way that they ended. Like in mid-season, we were talking about uh, the Seahawks not even making the playoffs. The fact that they made it in was very impressive. But I kind of we kind of see that this team is a team that's in transition. And like I think that's like the final thing basically. This was Marshawn Lynch's probably his last game. Like the identity of this team has changed fundamentally. That the defense is perhaps never going to be quite as good as it was, but also that this is now Russell Wilson's offense, and it's really exciting to see that because he's actually like he had a sneaky good season where he matured a lot, and we have someone like Tyler Lockett on the offense and Thomas Rawls. He's really exciting young players, but it was a it was a it was a transition season. Do you think this is more an element of now that Russell Wilson is such a focus of the offense and he's going out with Kiara and all the things that surround that, that he said, look, he'll do a lot of things, but he won't go all the way? <laughs> nice. <laughs> now on to the final game and what many would say the worst game. Pittsburgh at Denver, 16-23. to This was a pretty atrocious game for all involved. There was no passing touchdowns. There was one rushing touchdown per team. The only bright spark I can see is... Bryant had a good day, 40 yards rushing, 9 catches for 154 yards receiving. That's a pretty good day. There was 8 field goals, so if you're mad into kicking, it was a pretty pretty good game. This game is summed up by the post-game where Manning complimented the Pittsburgh defense on how complete and difficult they are to play against. <laughs> I think it's more a reflection on his own limitations. He looked terrible in this game. Takeaways from this game, Harry... Takeaways from this game, Pats go to the Super Bowl at this rate. Denver need to step up massively from this level of performance. And are they capable of it at this stage of the season? I don't know. Like, yeah. Manning looks shot. Here's, here's but the it. thing is, does, would Osweiler have done better in that game? Probably this, not. This is a straight-up question I have for both of you. Would you, and I know, obviously there's other elements to this of your tied to your record, there's politics involved and all that kind of stuff, right? If you were a head coach of the Denver Broncos and you didn't have to worry about what you were doing next year, would you start Manning in this championship game or would you start Osweiler? Because I would definitely be starting Osweiler. I don't think it makes a difference. I really don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Both of them have looked poor recently. Um, Both of them do different things still well. Both of them do different things badly. I'm not sure either of those are necessarily going to give them an edge in when it comes into the championship game. How about yourself, Ron? I'd probably still play Manning. It's not really a coaching decision. I think it's just it's one of those cases where it's a good story. I think and like I think he deserves to have at least one 
you know relevant game before he, he steps out. When you say when you say good story, did your parents read to you the little train that couldn't? <laughs> <laughs> considering the way it could have ended, like considering like the way it could have ended this season, I think like I think he deserves to have a chance to see what he can do out there. I like I think with the Denver defense. I don't think New England, like we're going to talk about this later, obviously, but I don't think there's a chance that a blowout is going to happen. It's just going to be kind of slow. It's a very slow offense. It makes KC, like makes Kansas look pretty high octane by comparison. If he could just pretend to get sacked several times in a row, then perhaps he will like be able to make massive receptions all, all night long. That actually was hilarious. Uh, you, you guys saw that, right? What Phil's referring to. When Manning, like whenever a defender gets near Manning now, he just goes fetal. Yeah. And uh, one of the Pittsburgh defenders got near him. Manning went fetal, then realised he hadn't been touched and got up and completed the pass. <laughs> <laughs> Shenanigans. Shenanigans. One of his longest reception games was that. His, like, his, his, longest, his longest pass through the air in this game I believe was 19 yards right and it looked like he was trying to desperately throw a 60 yard bomb like this looked like he was rifling it to the moon to try and get it 19 yards like I don't know what they're expecting to get out of this guy when it comes to the game against New England New England are playing well we're going to move on to it uh, in a moment but like I just don't see this guy being able to quarterback against a quite successful on a roll and quite together well-schemed New England team. You're better with a crap quarterback who can throw short passes than you are against someone who's going to have these wobbly aired out bits. Yeah, Brock Osweiler can't throw short passes and that's the problem. Brock Osweiler has no touch. Yes, but at least they'll be quick and they won't be grabbed by every single linebacker en route. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Like, if I want to pass a 10-yard pass and I have to throw it as a slow, wobbling ball through the arms of four linebackers, or I throw it as a bullet that will be caught every second time by a receiver... And kills Emmanuel Sanders the other time. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, come on. It's not Danny Amendola. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't think this is a great performance. I think the Pittsburgh team would have been a much more challenging game for New England this week, especially given that Brown would have been back. Yeah. You're quite lucky that it didn't happen that way. I still think you beat the Pittsburgh team, but I think there'd be a much better game in this if it wasn't. Yeah, probably fair. I think we should probably just mention Pittsburgh as well of this game. They sucked. They should feel bad. Is that fair? Yeah, it was not good. Cool. Not good at all. Although, Pitt and Manning thought your defence was good. <laughs> right, we're going to move on to listener questions. We're going to fly through one listener question this week because most of them came in about playoff games and stuff. The one that we're going to chat about today came in from Tom from Texas. Tom asked us, with how the overtime went for the Green Bay Packers, what do we think about the current rules and what will we do to change them to make them better? So, as it stands, they flipped a coin... Apparently, the coin didn't flip either properly or at all. Uh, There was lots of questions of that. But the big idea was that Green Bay didn't get to touch the ball. They lost because the other guy scored a touchdown. Interestingly, the Green Bay ownership voted against new regulations to ensure that everyone gets a possession in overtime during the offseason. So they very much brought this on themselves. So, lads, what do you think would be the best approach to overtime Given that this is essentially a new scenario anyway as of three years ago, that we have a response of a field goal is kicked. Two things um, before I get into answering that question. Firstly, Cleet Blakeman needs to go back to coin flipping school because he also messed up the New England Jets. He was part of the New England Jets mess up. <laughs> Secondly, Clay Matthews is a big baby and needs to grow up. I actually think the current overtime system is fine. Like, yeah, okay, you don't get to touch the ball. That's unfair. Look, it's, it's a sudden death thing. You, you still have a chance to send your defense out. And as it turns out, shockingly, the defense is also part of your football team. And if your defense what? is bad... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> if your defense is bad, like, I'm sorry. Like, that just happens sometimes. The problem with what they, the suggestion, what Clay Matthews is saying, oh, we should have a college-style thing where overtime's gone for 74... I don't know. Okay, I, I get why the in, in the injustice of the moment you're like, yeah, we should definitely get the ball. Aaron Rodgers should have a chance to score because we couldn't stop we couldn't stop them. But that gives a huge advantage to the second team to get the ball, so it doesn't actually eliminate the problem. Because now you're in a situation where you're like, okay, so this slightly favors the first team uh, to get the ball in overtime, and it does statistically. But if you look at the college games. Statistically, the second team to get the ball has a much higher winning percentage in college overtimes. So it doesn't actually solve the problem because then the second mover gets the advantage and then you're sort of just back to square one of having a fundamentally broken system. You're just dragging it out longer. And I think what we have now works fine. It's not completely balanced, but it is 
relatively so. Your defence is still important and you should still be able to rely on your defence to stop the other team. And if you can't do that, well, look, bad luck that your offence didn't get to go out there. Maybe you should have a better defence. Okay, okay. Alternative suggestion. Battle Royale. The two coaches have to sprint up and down the pitch. Whichever coach gets their first wins. Ronan, your suggestion. I think we should go to the NFL equivalent of penalties. Straight away. None none of this overtime stuff. Two-point conversions. Best of five. After that sudden death. Uh, touchdowns only count. Let's do this. Let's see what happens. What about about five-on-five... Ball goes in the middle, similar to dodgeball style, but instead of it being dodgeball, you just, whoever gets the ball first, then starts trying to do a five-on-five lateral movement all the way up to the end. Whoever gets a touchdown first wins. I I think that was how they settled the kickoffs um, when Vince McMahon set up a football league and they had to stop. That was, that was how kickoffs were doing the XFL, wasn't yeah, it? everyone got injured, had to stop. Well, I, I, I like the penalty thing, but here's what you should do. Extra point distance field goal. Everyone on your team has to take one. <laughs> Nominate five kickers, and then go. Because I want to see, I want to see linemen. I want to see linemen and I did, Peyton Manning there was, trying to there, kick there was, points. There's some chap at the NFL. I haven't heard in a while now, but someone was advocating this for a while, and I also was a great idea that. If someone is going to be a kicker in your team, they have to play at least ten snaps <laughs> elsewhere. So you can't just have like your 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 guaranteed like your little like five foot six, hundred and forty pound kicker. You need to have someone who's just like I am a three hundred and twenty pound fire truck who can also kick a ball. But yeah, what maybe about it be, maybe it should be a time trial thing? It's like not only each team gets a go and they have to only touchdowns count. But the team who does it faster, that's the tiebreaker uh, for the two touchdowns. Okay. Mm. Uh, possibly. <laughs> Pittsburgh win every game then. <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. Let's see. What would be what would be the Okay, what would be the worst tiebreaker? NFL penalties like kickers doing best of five. That would be the worst. Yeah, that's, that's why you well, no, actually, if I, no, 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 no. Taking the best of five kickers thing, but making them play a game of horse where they have to kick from different <laughs> positions. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> keep, keep moving it back until somebody misses. Punt competition. That would be the worst. So overall, yeah, basically, the current situation doesn't seem like the worst scenario in the world. I get that people get annoyed that they don't get to have their offense on the field. But hey... Half your team is meant to be fucking defense, right? So get your shit together. It's surprisingly a good equalizer for two teams that have a strong defense versus a strong offense that this can be advantageous to either. So yeah, it's broken, but there's no better way to do it, I suppose. So we're going to move on to the most important part, the games for this weekend. So we've got two championship games this weekend. We've got the AFC and the NFC. Time to decide who goes to the Super Bowl. The first game up is New England at Denver. So we've got it here again. Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning. They've played 16 times. So they've played an entire season against each other. New England have significantly been the better of the two uh, in these matches. One tweeter into our question section said, Is this the least enthused people have been for the matchup between Pepe and Brady? I'd certainly guess so. I think most people are looking at this and saying... This was the old school like quarterback on quarterback game. That was it, like two great minds, two great players of the game. Now you're looking and going, this is Tom Brady versus the Denver Broncos defense, like because it's a great defense. What we've got is a healthy Patriots roster uh, to a certain extent. We've got obviously Edelman is in great form. Gronk looks like he's good. Amendola was slightly limited last game, but was healthy. They've got some questions in the line, but for the most part, they are healthy. And they're taking on the NFL's top defense from the season. A Hall of Famer quarterback now. He's on a severe downstroke of his career. He's not doing fantastically, but he does have the knowledge to be able to help them. And this is a true question of can a individual who understands the game well, plus a very good defense, beat you know, kind of a, a much more dynamic form of scenario. So I suppose there's two questions I'm going to ask you guys on this one. Um, I'll start with you, Ronan, because obviously Harry's more invested. Uh, can Denver's defense stop New England's offense, do you think? What needs to happen for that? It's a simple thing uh, against New England. It's getting pressure on Tom Brady. It's something that Kansas City failed to do completely. And it, it, it's kind of difficult because New England can speed up their uh, offense when they need to to avoid that pressure. But I think it's just the case that you have to hope that Von Miller and Demarcus Ware are able to make enough pressure quickly, and especially that pressure up the middle as well. They'll need that to be to be working hard. Like basically, 
like Tom Brady can be made to look mortal. Like that Kansas City game last season was a good example of that. But you need to get consistent pressure on them, and you need the secondary to live up to it. Like that's the biggest problem for Denver that their number one uh, cornerback uh, Chris Harris is basically injured and it's only it's basically been used in like in the nickel package only uh, in the slot. But he's very he played about he played about. 70% of the snaps in the last game, didn't he? Yeah, but out of, out of position. is. is oh, sorry, sorry. So, yeah, so, the, so they're not matching him up one-on-one. On one. They put Roby outside, I think. So you have Roby outside, who's, like, he's okay. He's not, he's not terrible, but he's young. Uh, like, he made a good play with the, with the turnover, obviously, last game. But it's kind of a case where, like, the Denver defense needs to, like earlier in the season when, when Brock Osweiler was, was in charge, need to like have an amazing day to shut down this New England offense. The New England offense isn't impervious. Like beyond Edelman and Gronkowski, like there isn't much there. Like it's a bit threadbare to be honest. So like KC didn't really put try to put that much pressure on. They kinda had a lot of three man fronts, didn't really rush that much. I think Denver are gonna have to be much more aggressive if they want to have a chance of making this game. Uh, and like yeah, in terms of the quarterback battle it's like, you know, the stake of Tom Brady versus like the stake Papa John's pizza of Peyton Manning. It's it's yeah, that that that's not really a contest no, at all. Of course, of course. Now, obviously it's probably it's probably not lost on any of the listeners that we're all siding with New England in this game. But uh, Harry, you're you're a New England fan, right? What does Peyton Manning need to achieve on offense to be able to succeed here? Two things Peyton Manning needs to be able to do. Firstly, no turnovers, that's critical. They need to keep that defence fresh and healthy. They need to give it New England as few opportunities as possible. Peyton needs to take good care of the ball. And if that means playing that super slow, conservative thing we've seen him do recently, that's what he's going to have to do. The second thing that Peyton Manning is going to need to do is Peyton Manning is going to need to be really, really good at handing the ball off. Because that's what Den- what Denver's offence will need to re- revolve around. It's going to have to be a run-first offence. and it's you, oh, It's had to be recently anyway, but it's going to have to be more so because New England can be a bit questionable about the run. There are still problems with tackling. Dante Hightower looked okay last week, but still not as good as he has especially, been. Especially it's, with speed running backs as well. Yes. Yeah, they do struggle. The problem is that New England, New England don't have great players in the middle of the line. D- the defensive tackles and nose tackles we play aren't as good as our defensive ends and linebackers are. So there's, there's, teams do have success getting sort of quick one-cut guys to get up the middle and just burst past that first tackle and can be quite difficult to bring down given that New England's linebackers often go into coverage and do all this yeah. these slightly uh, sometimes it's not like there's exotic blitz, blitzes but there's a lot of different looks going on so the linebackers have a lot of different assignments a lot, a lot of distractions from what the coverage slash rushers is going it, to be exactly and that can create space against very simple kind of up the gut plays sometimes because the players aren't necessarily going to be there so that's the critical thing is Peyton Manning needs to just take this game out of his own hands and that then will create the space to allow him to hit those bubble screens and sort of short to medium distance passes that he still can do re- with reasonable accuracy to guys like Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders and get them to try and do the work after the catch. But for Denver, it's avoiding turnovers. So again, avoiding what they've done in the last few weeks where they've been a little bit careless with the ball at times, just basically cut the, cut those errors out. And you know, like, yeah, I'm pretty confident going into it, but it's not a scenario where it's 100%. There are still ways Denver can win this game. We saw them beat New England during the season on the basis of a tough defense, a strong running game. So if they can get those things playing as well as they can, they should be okay. Although both those aspects of their game do seem to have dropped off recently, which is the big concern for Denver. No, of course. So like 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 we said, I think two main matchups we're looking at here because uh, they've both been matching so far is who's Chris Harris going to match himself up on, and if he is healthy, him versus Edelman is going to be a very very important game. And if not, I presume it's going to be your old cornerback uh, that will be coming. Mm. So that'll be very interesting. Now I presume they're smart enough to to be aware of that because. Uh, all, all we've seen is that uh, Bill Belichick sends out previous players and coaches as sleeper cells into other teams to disrupt oh, them. Akeem <laughs> Tlaib didn't... Uh, Akeem Tlaib, I don't know if he would like... He crippled uh, Wes Welker uh, yeah. uh, last what? season. I mean, obviously, I, it's not hard like, to breathe <laughs> on him, but he, he he went chippy. He go, plays very chippy in general, and he certainly does against New England. So Bill said, I don't want to have to deal with him anymore. <laughs> Take him out. Yeah. Um, the other one, I suppose, is then obviously going to be the like, Pats O-line versus the Denver pass rush, because that's, that, that's going to be a deciding factor as to whether or not they have the time to do what they want. But I suppose, boys, the most important question, scores on the board. What do we reckon? I'm going to say this is going to be 31 to 17 in New England's favour 17 to 10 oh wow New England wow okay 42-13 42-13 to New England oh boys got balls yeah. bad is boys 
And now this brings us on to the next game and what I have highlighted on my page is best game alert, best game alert. Arizona at Carolina. I'm not going to lie, I'm just really, really excited for this. Two really excellent teams at all levels of their teams facing off against each other. Just, just a few examples of how that is. The number one and number two teams in team offense, so points scored. The number six and number eight team in team defense, so points against. Bizarrely, of all the things, this is just one I thought was funny, number 31 and 32 in scoring defense. They're both effective, yet non-splashy defenses. So we've got two fantastic offenses with great players, two great multi-level defenses. Carolina have had a problem of late closing out games that we've discussed beforehand. The Cardinals have had a problem of late of just doing nothing in the first half of games and scoring the shit out of the second half of a game. So uh, this is really a good and interesting matchup on almost every single level I can consider, which therefore means it's going to be a terrible game. (laughs) (laughs) What are the focus areas in this going to be is the main question, because he's... I think we both agree they're both very complete and good teams, right? The way I phrase this, I think, was strategy or shootout, right? Which is, is this a scenario where they're going to be able to match our defense is good and their offense is good and we're going to be able to scheme them out of it? Or is this a scenario where they're going to have to accept that both of them are going to be able to move the ball and just going to have to try and be more effective than the other by increments rather than by big steps? Yeah, I think the second one. We've seen the way these teams have played recently is that they are perfectly capable of being tight and being, you know, controlling games, but it's not how they play. It's not what they do and it's not what they're going to want to do. Both these teams are going to... Well, it's a terrible cliche. Both these teams are going to want to win this game because, <laughs> yeah, presumably every team wants to win every game. But both of these teams are going to want to play as well as they can and they're going to play to the maximum of their ability. And I think we're going to see a, a relatively high scoring game between two explosive offences. I think we're going to see two defences play well, but still end up giving up a lot of points. Because that's how these games often go, is when there's so much momentum and traction on offence that it's very difficult mm-hmm. for a defence to actually um, effectively stop that a lot of the time. And both these defences, while they are good, have certainly shown uh, vulnerabilities over the last few weeks in terms of, in terms of giving up the score. For, like, for me, like in terms of what the big areas we're going to look at here is, again, it's can Arizona get a run game going? Carson Palmer struggled last week. You're going to want to take a bit of pressure off him, uh, particularly when Carolina's run game is back with Jonathan Stewart, as we, as we saw last week. Can, can Carolina contain Larry Fitzgerald? He is the angriest, oldest man, and he is laying the smackdown on some kids. We saw him do it last week. He just was like, nope, I want a ring. Fuck you. I'm going off 180 yards. Can Carolina contain him? Because bear in mind, he's been playing in the slot a lot as well. He's lining up, going to be lining up against a less experienced corner because yeah. they'll have two Brown or three corners outside. Yeah. Like, it well, he might not even necessarily be the number two or three corner because, of course, their main slot corner, Ben Wickeray, broke his leg earlier in the season. So if it still comes out of the slot, there's a potential there for a lot of yardage. So the question is, how do you shut him down without giving up vulnerability on the perimeter? I suppose, Fitz, this is the question I wanted to ask you now. So this is the thing. We, we, we said, like, shoot out our strategy, right? But there is an element of, even in the small... Small successes, this type of movement, the slot corner versus a four versus a three cornerback and stuff like that. Where do you think schematically these people can kind of try and get their little bits of advantage? Where do you see the, not not necessarily the big plays coming from, but the small ones that add up to make a win happen? Yeah, so for Arizona, like their their major strength has obviously been the aerial attack. They have those like three talented players. They have Fitzgerald, as Harry talked about, but obviously Michael Floyd, who's been injury prone, but when he's been fit this season, he's actually been very, very effective. And they have the speedster John Brown, who's continued to develop really well. Like the thing is that this Panthers uh, secondary is banged up a lot, and even wasn't even that talented. Where after the exception of Josh Norman, before that, uh, Charles Tillman was the uh, their, their second cornerback who got injured uh, earlier this season, and now they're playing people like Cortland Finnegan, who is experienced, but in all the wrong ways. <laughs> uh, he'd likely to be facing up either against Michael Floyd or against Larry Fitzgerald for large tracks of this game. So then the question becomes, will Carson Palmer have enough time to take advantage of not only being able to make those like those throws to Larry Fitzgerald and try to get those yards after the catch, something which you can't really say that with that linebacking core, the Panthers wouldn't be capable of shutting down something like Larry Fitz after the catch. Like, is it do, Does Carson Palmer get enough time to stick in the pocket and throw those deep shots, which have been such a major part of the repertoire of this Bruce Arians offense? Will John Brown be a factor? Will Michael Floyd be a factor? And that basically comes down to, will... 
the Carolina defensive front be as dominant as it was in the first half against the Seahawks. Like with Kaywon Short and uh, starting to the two and Larry, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and Charles and uh, Charles Johnson, I believe. Like they they have so much talent on that defensive line, and if they can get to Carson Palmer, and we saw that against Green Bay, then that will take that out of the game. I think those are the two major areas which will decide this game. Like basically, will that defensive front of Carolina be able to like slow, like basically prevent Carson Palmer from being able to make the deep shots that are there if he's given time? I think it's going to be a really interesting game. I think your boat ride is going to be quite high scoring, uh, considering the, even considering the quality of these defenses, and it should be a cracking game. Right. So Fitz, I suppose this is the main question: scoring the board. What do you reckon it's going to be? Twenty-four. Uh, twenty-four to thirty-two. Okay. In whose favour? Oh, in favour of Carolina. Okay. Uh, Harry? Uh, I think about Carolina win 30-33 to 33 in overtime. Oh, exciting, exciting. Mm. So we get... Yeah, so we're getting, we're getting a full-on field goal overtime win in that one. Uh, I'm going to go with 34-28. to 28, The Panthers, with them holding out to a end-of-the-game drive... Where a touchdown would have the the Cardinals winning the game with their with their one point conversion, it'll make for an exciting last ninety seconds of a game. So that's I suppose our calls on that. This Arizona Cardinals game is going to be amazing. Yeah, high hopes <laughs> for this one. I think whoever wins football football is definitely going to be a winner. This was this is what we get to say. We said who's going to win this game, and every single one is like basically football or. Ronan's erection again, which I'm sick of hearing about. Stop texting us about your erection, Ronan. And I think, like, one matchup that you can't underestimate this game is my erection. Bruce Arians, Bruce Arians versus Riverboat Ron. That's really, uh, like, what we've been looking for. Going for uh, they're going for a Hail Mary. Better send the Blitz. They're sending the Blitz. <laughs> Don't protect the quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> All the linemen are eligible. <laughs> Every lineman is eligible. But yeah, any other cracker yourselves, boys? Nah, not much, not much since the start of the podcast when he asked that question, no. Fair enough. I said, like, <laughs> any plans for the next while until we chat to the, the fine internet folk who listen to us again? Uh, no, pretty quiet. Yeah, I think I've got some work drinks and stuff, nothing major planned. Obviously, this is going to take up the next weekend, and then uh, I might actually take it easy during the off-season. Off-season? The week off. The week oh, off, that's it. The week off, because I've got, obviously, the Super Bowl, and I'm going to a stag the night before. Oh, yeah. Which is going to be... Fun. Actually, one of one of our favourite question contributors, stag, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, that is correct. He is, he, is, he is getting married. How come, if other people are married, is his wedding going so poorly? <laughs> just just oh. for context, it's the chap who asked... Uh, when Tony Romo was injured, are the Lions doing so badly? Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, oh, that's my wedding present from Sword. I'm going to buy him a Lions jersey with Romo on the back. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. Next week's going to be great. Pro Bowl hype right here. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll, yeah. Have to, we'll have to do our live Pro Bowl draft analysis. <laughs> oh, my God. Please. Pro Bowl um, hype. So like we say, thanks very much for the questions, guys. Keep them coming in. Uh, give us any comments or anything you want. We're obviously up on iTunes, up on Facebook, up on Twitter, and all of that kind of internet shite that uh, people seem to like. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We'll chat to you all next week, and uh, enjoy the games. See you then. Bye. <laughs> 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 meow. <laughs>